Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Ben Habib, co-founder of Unlocked, former Brexit Party MEP, of course, as well. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, let's kick off with uh, some of the state of the economy uh, that we're hearing about this morning, because we keep hearing that there are more and more places in Britain where there are hardly any cases whatsoever uh, of COVID, where there literally hasn't been a case for for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, where nobody's died. Um, We've got so much immunity now in this country that it's almost as though we, we could return to normal, and yet we still don't seem to be. No, we aren't. And I think a lot was given away by the Prime Minister the the other day when he said that actually it was a lockdown that was responsible for the fall in cases as opposed to the vaccination programme. Mm. That basically torpedoed the the government narrative to date, which has been that once we're vaccinated, they'll be able to open up the economy and we can go back to normal. And I don't think he torpedoed it, it, you know, inadvertently. I think it was a deliberate attempt Because this government now, whether it started off like this or not, this government now is hooked on a sort of diet of scaremongering, um, control and simultaneous subsidy of the British people, Mm. you know, through the scheme and the bounce back loans and all that sort of thing. And so you have a government that's kind of wet nursing the British people. And I think the reason for that is because they are fearful of what's going to happen when they unlock the economy. I think they're really fearful about what the state of the private sector is going to be once all the stimulus is removed, Mm. once the furlough scheme ends. And eventually we have to face that reality. But they just haven't got the courage to do it. Yes. But I mean, I don't understand why they would want to keep something going, which inevitably is causing more harm and causing more distress and is likely to end up causing more job losses instead of just biting the bullet and getting on with it. Yeah, well, the Prime Minister said a couple of months ago, he said, those of you who lose your jobs in the private sector, you know, do come and work for the NHS or some other public body. Right. He actually said that. Now, that's economically illiterate, Mike, mm. isn't it? It is. You know, we know that there is no public sector if there isn't a private sector. It's the private sector that earns the money that pays the tax mm. that keeps the public sector going. And I think the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have lost touch with basic economic theory. And they've got to have the courage to go over the precipice of unlocking the economy and allowing the private sector to get back to work. And do you think that there is somebody inside the Treasury actually working out what the cost will be to the economy and what the cost will be to the government, indeed, uh, of subsidy once they take away the furlough money and transfer it into sort of welfare benefits? Because I presume there's somebody going, actually, we're just going to be taking money uh, that we don't give to them that way and giving it to them another way. Absolutely right. You know, there are six million people on furlough still, you know, and a large proportion of them are going to be made redundant. We've already got three million unemployed. You know, take another three on top of that. You're talking about a fifth of the Mm. workforce, 20 percent of the workforce. So you're going to shift economically productive people into economically unproductive state supported people, as it has been for the last year. Yeah, it's a terrible position for the economy to be in. And I keep hearing 
a kind of rose-tinted view of our prospects from people like Andrew Bailey. And it might be that he's got to say that in order to buoy confidence, but it's really not reality. When, when that stimulus is removed, it is going to be a very painful picture for the United Kingdom. Absolutely right. And what businesses do you think are the most vulnerable? Because obviously we've watched as some of the hospitality businesses have reopened and if the weather's reasonable, people are going out. However, I mean, I was at lunch on um, Wednesday in a, in a friend's restaurant. He's only really got about five or six of tables outside his restaurant and only two of them are occupied. Now, he's not making any money on that particular day. He, he was hoping that uh, in the evening he was going to get a bit busier. But it's very tough for people who have opened up and who don't have a subsidy anymore. It's very tough. And remember, they've had to exist somehow for over a year now without any income coming in other than government health. And no business can survive that. You've got to have turnover in order to generate profits to stay healthy. So all these businesses, to the extent that they've survived the lockdowns, have done so through a diet of debt and government grant. And the businesses that are most affected are going to be are going to be the ones are the ones that operate in the real economy. So hospitality, mm. leisure, retail, um, anything that comes off that. So office, you know, the property market, for example, the office market, the retail uh, market for, for, for property businesses like mine, anything that operate, operates in the real world has been knocked for six. And the ethereal economy, you know, the economy through Amazon, Apple and all the rest of it, they've done very well. And they've done better as a, as a result of lockdown, but actually it's the real world that has been knocked for six. Mm. And the other thing we've got to bear in mind is that London is a prime generator of revenue for the government and for the United Kingdom. And London is not going to get back up on its feet until we open up not just the economy locally, but international travel. Yes. London is dependent on international travel. So I'm very fearful about the state of London post the end of this lockdown. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't emphasise enough when I talk to, to people about the amount of money that tourism brings to this country. I mean, there are huge swathes of Britain which won't survive at all without tourism. I mean, Scotland in particular. I mean, all of Scotland, sort of north of the, the central belt, is pretty much run on tourism. Absolutely. Well, 80% of our economy is services, and mm. a large proportion of that is hospitality and tourism and all the rest of it. Yeah. And so we've got to bite that bullet. And the, and the prime minister shifting the debate away from vaccines being the answer to lockdown being the answer is a very, very worrying signal. It's almost as if, you know, he's contemplating another lockdown already, notwithstanding the alleged comments he apparently made in number 10. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's very weird, isn't it? Let's move on to something else that uh, is, is very much at the top of your agenda, Ben, and that's Northern Ireland. Kate Hoey made a speech in the House of Lords the other day um, and, and, and was asking um, Lord Frost what he was planning to do. And he said some very interesting things, I thought, didn't he? Well, I think the implications of what he said were astounding. Yeah. I mean, what Kate asked him was, that he, did he recognise that there were societal issues in Northern Ireland as a result of the protocol? And did he accept that the protocol had to be ditched? And in response, what he said was that he had actually pleaded with the vice president of the European Commission, Sefcovic, to act pragmatically and proportionately mm. in their interpretation of the protocol. And in saying that, he revealed two things, Mike. The first is that the United Kingdom clearly isn't sovereign, because in order to deal with problems in Northern Ireland, he's had to go begging to the vice president of the European Commission. Um, you know, so... That 
that absolutely reveals the failure in the government to deliver its central promise to return sovereignty to the United Kingdom. But the other thing he revealed was a lack of understanding of how contract law works. Mm. It's not that the EU is acting in an unpragmatic or disproportionate manner. The EU is enforcing the terms of the protocol. And the terms of the protocol are what is disproportionately bad for the United Kingdom. So the only mechanism to sort out the problems in Northern Ireland is by actually repudiating the protocol. Mm. There can be no solution to the protocol through the protocol. It has to be ditched. Right. And it seems to be entirely lost on David Frost that that is the route the government has to take, which is why, you know, we've got this litigation going, Mike. Yes. And how is that going? Well, it's going very well. Um, we have our High Court hearing on the 14th of May. That's confirmed. I've seen two sets of responses from the government. And in both sets of responses, the government completely fails to address our two central points. And they are that the Withdrawal Agreement Act prohibited messing with the Northern Ireland Act 1998, which is the act on which the Belfast Agreement was founded. And actually, they have messed with that act. They've transposed into it parts of the Withdrawal Agreement, a complete breach, again, of everything the government's been saying, that they will not mess with the Belfast Agreement. They've had to mess with it to get the protocol through. Mm. And they haven't addressed that point in our litigation. And the other point that they've singularly failed to address is that the Act of Union 1800 requires that every part of the United Kingdom is treated equally with every other part and that every citizen in the United Kingdom is an equal citizen. Kind of obvious stuff. You would think. <laughs> you would think. But when, the, when you leave Northern Ireland behind in the EU, you drive a coach and horses through the Constitution of the United Kingdom. Mm. And on those two central points, the government has failed to put up any arguments. Mm. They just sent us loads of copies of Hansard, as dull as that is. Yeah, I mean, this is the trouble with the way that the government responds to everything now, isn't it? Because the um, the opposition, for want of a, of a better phrase, is so poor that they seemingly think that if they kick everything away into the long grass for long enough, everyone will just forget about it and they'll just move on to something else. And we'll get to Carrygate in a minute. But, you know, I wonder if there was an opportunity missed this week because there was the Brexit trade deal finally done and signed and, and passed over the line. And I wonder whether they ought to have perhaps been more um, robust about what's happening in Northern Ireland before they signed that deal. Well, the United Kingdom should have been more robust. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why we gave the EU more time to approve the deal. Mm. You know, we are so timid. We're so weak. We thought when we voted for Boris Johnson that we'd get Winston Churchill. What we've got is Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, I but know. Neville Chamberlain squared. Somebody told me actually yesterday that Winston Churchill, apparently when he died, was in terrible debt. I wonder if that's the bit of Winston Churchill's legacy that Boris likes. <laughs> that's clearly a bit he seems to have inherited <laughs> it does let's let's talk about that a little bit you know lots of people uh admiring in the polls this morning the fact that the tories have taken a one point lead over the 10 point leads and now 11 points ahead of labor uh in the polls yeah. suggesting that nobody cares about uh you know carrie antoinette gate or whatever you wish to call it um i don't think it's a matter of whether people care about it it's surely a matter of procedure in public office and for boris johnson to be so kind of profligate with money uh, it may not be anybody's concern and it's not his money after all but i think we're all entitled to know whose money it was aren't we we are absolutely entitled to know whose money it was but it does beg a belief doesn't it mike that you know he's floated off northern ireland and Labour Party and the media don't really make anything of it mm. other than your good self and your colleagues. 
make nothing of it, but they home in on a £58,000 expenditure on wallpaper and curtains. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, and I think it comes back again to the initial discussion we had, the nation is now hooked on a diet of negative messaging from the government, lockdown and subsidy. And they like it. The, the, the people seem to like staying at home, not coming out to work and getting this government subsidy. And Boris Johnson has realized that. And so his popularity is being maintained, notwithstanding his abysmal record, because he's effectively and infantilizing the electorate. Yeah. He's paying them to subdue them. And fine, that works to a point. But eventually, his failure to behave like a proper prime minister, to fulfill the promises he made in his manifesto, to avoid bankrupting the country, to avoid partitioning the country, all these failures are eventually going to come home to roost. Mm. And his legacy, I think, is going to be one of the worst legacies of any prime minister when it, when it gets written. Well, because when and if they do decide to change track and change tack, I should say, um, you know, they are going to have to do it full square, aren't they? They can't just do it slightly. They can't just go, well, we'll just open a bit of the economy here and just open a bit of the economy there. You know, because once you sort of open the gates, as it were, I think people will start running through them. And I think people, because I've already noticed it in some areas here in London, um, you know, people will start just doing what they used to do, won't they? They will. Of course they will. Of course, And so they should. It's a, it's a basic human right for us mm. to go about our normal businesses, you know, unless we're doing damage to the community, yeah. which... You know, by and large, um, going shopping, um, working in offices, going to the flicks, going to the theatre, mm. these things have never, ever been illegal. Right. I mean, what a situation we're in. It really is quite extraordinary. But but as you say, I mean, if you're looking at the, the, the world in, in, the, in the way that you've just described, in terms of Britain and the way that we are dealing with all of this, do you, not, do you see no sign of this changing then? No, I think I think the prime minister is petrified of what's on the other edge of opening up the economy. Yeah. And he's recognized. I mean, the Conservative Party is brilliant at leading by following the polls. They have a very, very clear approach of governance. And it's they are led by the polls and they do what the polls indicate is popular. And they've realized that furlough, these subsidies, people working from home is actually very popular, mm. even though it's hugely damaging. And so they are following it. And they haven't got the courage to change it, even though the right thing to do is to bite the bullet and get on with opening up the economy. They won't do it because it, it, it's not popular and the risks are too high. Yeah. And popularity would appear to be what it's all about. It's, that's what it's all about. You mm. can spend £58,000 illegally. Not that I'm suggesting either that the jury's out on that, but he could spend £58,000 illegally. He can text message Mohammed bin Salman about, you know, um, uh, football teams. He yeah. can text message. Dyson, he can do whatever he wants, but as long as that popularity is maintained, the Tory party will be happy with him. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing some very odd stories from people that have worked inside of, of Boris Johnson's Downing Street, that it is a pretty chaotic place at the best of times. Well, it must be hugely chaotic. And, you know, with with um, Dominic Cummings' revelations recently, mm. you know, you've got to ask yourself, even if he is the source of the leak, even if Dominic Cummings is an incredibly difficult individual and is partially to blame for what went before. Even if all of that is true, it was the prime minister that brought him into the inner circle. It was the prime minister that had the poor judgment to do that, the mm. poor judgment to share secrets with Dominic Cummings. And, you know, now to try and blame Dominic Cummings for his own failings, it just, you know, 
I know it is. It is absolutely and utterly bizarre. And and in the end, do you think he will survive all of these slings and arrows, and he, and he will leave at a time of his doing rather than a time of somebody else's doing? I, I think it's virtually inconceivable that he will leave at a time of his doing. I suspect that he'll stay for a lot longer um, than we might think mm. because of this policy of subsidy and infantilizing the population. Um, but eventually that has to end. Mm. As you say, as you said, Mike, the floodgates will open and people will force ourselves back to some form of normality. People will force that issue eventually. And when that is forced, we will see that Northern Ireland is no longer part of the Union of the United Kingdom. We might find Scotland is no longer part of the United Kingdom. We will find that our economy is in dire straits, that the private sector has been absolutely nailed, and people will look to blame someone for that. And rightly, they will look to the Prime Minister. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. Ben, thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib there, uh, co-founder of Unlocked and also former Brexit Party MEP, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Today we're talking about people trying to get doctor's appointments and failing to get doctor's appointments. There's a story uh, in one of the papers this morning about 100 GP surgeries actually closing uh, over the course of this past year uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Some 778 practices have closed or merged since 2013, meaning almost 2.5 million patients have been affected in seven years, according to figures uh, released today. Let's talk to Dr Lawrence Buckman, former chair of the BMA's GP committee and a North London GP himself. Lawrence, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I hear from an awful lot of people that they haven't been able to see a doctor or see their doctor for quite some time. I mean, what is the reason why so many doctors are still not really operating normally? Most of us are struggling to recruit. Mm. Um, this isn't about money. The fact is there just aren't enough doctors out there who want to become members of a practice, whether as partners or just workers. There just are not enough of them. And the pandemic... And our response to having to vaccinate, you know, the whole population means that the number of doctors available to see people who are not well uh, is sadly way below what's needed Mm. for patients to be able to get instant or at least this week access to a a GP. Right. And is that something that was going on even before the pandemic, then, would you say? Yes, the pandemic's just made it worse. Mm. This has been... We've been warning governments for the last 10 years that there was going to be a massive retirement bulge yes. at, at the end of the, the uh, 2010s to 2020s. And that retirement bulge has happened. Mm. Loads of people have retired and you can't recruit. And uh, strangely, however much money you put on the table, you still can't recruit. People, doctors don't want to be GPs in a permanent setting. Uh. You can find locum doctors, but neither patients nor practice really want locums as the mainstay of no. how they work. Well, no, because most people would like, and this may well be pie in the sky for a lot of people, I fortunately don't go to the doctors very often, but most people want a doctor to be reasonably familiar with them, don't they? Yes, of course, and they're entitled to that, really, yeah. because if you see someone you know, you've already saved a lot of time because you're known to each other, and I'm assuming that you know and trust each other, right. um, and that's that's a very good start for a relationship. You can't build a long-term relationship with somebody who's only there for a few days. No, exactly right, and, and who isn't ever there again. I mean, I've got this, for example, from Wendy, uh, one of many uh, tweets I've got today. Mike, I'm 10 years post-stroke with underlying health conditions. I'm supposed to be monitored regularly, yet have not been able to see a GP for over 13 months. Yes, I'm afraid that's that's very typical. Yeah. For a lot of smaller practices, have really struggled 
largely because, of course, lots of them have had COVID mm. um, and because they're very, very scared to open. Bigger practices tend to weather the storm better. Um, they have systems, it's called triage, which is actually a military term, but they have systems of preparing to see which patients need to be seen fast and which ones can wait for a bit. But the trouble is many patients find it difficult to get through in the first place. They're hanging on a phone, they're in a queue, and by the time they get to the top of the queue, all the appointments have gone. And that's because doctors can only see so many humans per day before it becomes unsafe. Yes. And, and, and if you've got less doctors, less nurses, and a pressurized reception system, you can't really handle the number of people who quite legitimately want and need to see the doctor. So somebody who's chronically sick, who needs to be reviewed regularly, and, there, and there's a huge population of those, those people have lost access to their GP for the, during the pandemic because the GP's been doing something else. And, and they can't get what most people would regard as a decent service. That's starting to come back now. Mm. It is, it's changed since March, really. The beginning of March is when most practices really did unlock thoroughly. Um, certainly our practices work almost normally, but not quite because we're vaccinating. Um, and if you, it can't be in two places at once. Um, that's, that's the thing. But are there also uh, GP surgeries that are not opening as a result of, of, of COVID or because they feel that they still can't for, uh, for, for COVID reasons? Yes, particularly where doctors are shielding mm. and feel... Um, understandably scared, particularly doctors who come from the minority ethnic communities. But, if, um, but surely they've been vaccinated, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, they've been vaccinated, but they're scared that if they're exposed to people with COVID, uh, their vaccinations will not be enough protection. And uh, why? And there is some, well, because they because there's a tiny risk, as you know, um, for those people. But what happens is it's not just the doctors; it's all the staff. The having yeah, but that's, to clean but I mean, down that, the that is a crazy situation, isn't it? Because I mean, if you're absolutely. in the health, if you're in the healthcare business, you shouldn't be scared of meeting people who no. might have disease, surely? You're quite right. But very small practices struggle to keep the place clean. If you've got to clean down your surgery after every patient walks through the door, mm. which you're still having to do, um, you have to make space for that, and that means your consultation rate drops. If you're seeing people every ten minutes, you've just lost three people an hour yeah um by but is that a regulation then is, is that what they have to do yeah 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 you have right. to do that so it um, sounds to me lawrence that it's a combination of three things right so you've got the covid regulations which are problematic it would seem to seeing people normally uh you've got problems with with some small practices where the doctors are frightened of, of getting covid despite having been vaccinated and finally the recruitment problem Yes, I, of those three, I would say the recruitment problem is the real one. Right, right. That's, and I don't have an instant solution for it because um, it, you can't just say, well, throw money at it because it's not that. The people don't want to be general practitioners, right. and that's been going on for a long time. And our job is to encourage people to come back to general practice. And there are people coming back, but nowhere near the numbers that you need mm. to provide people with a decent service. Nobody should be waiting but more than 24 hours with a new problem. No. Nobody. No. Uh, and but I mean, this it is part, I mean, this if is this something that's chronic, it doesn't matter. But something that's acute, 
you really mustn't have people waiting no. with sickness. But we, we also know, because I've been talking to people throughout the course of the last few months, we also know people who have not had their cancer diagnosed because they weren't able to see a specialist and they're now having to be treated for stage four cancer, which wouldn't have been the case if they'd been seen earlier. You know, there's an awful lot of these types of problems. Surely somebody needs to get to grips with it and say, look, 40 million people or upwards of 40 million people live in this country in areas where there's hardly any COVID. So surely you could take away one uh, of those uh, um, sort of uh, impediments to people being seen by a doctor. Yes. I mean, if, if you want to do something quick and easy, you start to say if everybody in the building has been vaccinated and the patient has been vaccinated, yeah. then the cleaning down routine can be abbreviated. Yes. Not stopped, of course, but abbreviated. Right. That immediately almost doubles your consultation yeah. rate. Because also most of the people who will now be going to see a GP will not be going to see a GP because they got COVID. No, that's right. And that's why my personal view, based on common sense but no evidence, is that you could return the consultation rate to almost normal, maybe five maybe five in an hour rather than, rather than the sixth in an hour. Yes. But you could... That, well, that's a big, big increase in access... Um, and would make a massive difference to people. And no one is proud of delayed diagnosis for serious illness. No, of no, course. no one's pleased at that. And we've been warning governments for years that that was an inevitable corollary of under-recruitment. Mm. And that's something that is, I don't think is in our gift. But if you want to do something quick and cheap, I would, I would reduce um, cleaning time. Yeah. And that's something you could do, although I'm sure you'll find a government advisor who says that's a bad idea. I'm sure you can find a government advisor who can say almost anything. But, I mean, who's in charge of making that decision now, then? I would think the chief medical officer mm. is is the person to whom we'd have to turn for somebody to say, look, you don't have to be quite so assiduous in, in cleaning the place up all the time. Yeah. And one, one-way systems and spraying down things. I mean, you've got to use sanitizer, and I understand the reason why people should be wearing masks indoors when they're not actually with the doctor, um, where they, the doctor needs to look at their face. Um, but I just think you, you could make life easier, and that mm. would cost nothing. Well, it seems to me that this is feeding into another conversation we're having today, which is that despite the fact that we appear to be seeing loads and loads of areas of, of, of Britain without any infection whatsoever, um, the, the, the rates of death have plummeted to practically nothing, and yet we're still not able to do so many things that, that you would have thought by now we would be doing. And it seems to me that the medical business is even more important to, to, to lift restrictions in. Yes, I think the one thing that's holding people back and the great news this week about transmission being greatly reduced mm. by vaccination, which we all believe but didn't have any evidence for. Yes. Um, now I think we are in a position to open up with one big caveat that most of the scientific community is scared that Brazil, South Africa and most importantly, the new Indian yeah. variant will end up in the UK. Right. And I'm not but all those variants have ended up already in, here. But all of them have been here already. I mean, the Indian variant was here before we shut the borders of India. Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, we can have a discussion about when you should shut borders. Um, but we're where we are. Mm. And I think the fear is that if new variants start moving out unchecked, we are going to risk 
rises. We're going to risk rises anyway. There will inevitably be a rise in cases when we unlock fully. And I think that we well, can maybe not, though, because there hasn't, the I mean, there hasn't been so far, because one of the reasons the government has said they want five weeks in between everything that they do is so that they can judge whether there is a problem. In the same way as this morning, we're reading that, you know, by June 21st, we won't need to have social distancing at uh, large events, because clearly, from what the experimentation has been so far, that hasn't created a problem. No, and that's not surprising. Outdoor events, I don't think, are a risk at all. Yeah. Indoor events, there's an experiment in Liverpool. Yes. I think it's today, actually. Yeah, there's a uh, nightclub going on, isn't there? Yes, but deliberately to see what would happen. Uh, and I think that's uh, completely reasonable that we should start testing the fear, in other words, be less frightened of, mm. and testing the fear of what you do when you put people together non-distanced indoors. Yes. What happens? And I think now it's completely legitimate for scientists to test the theory of how infective it is now, bearing in mind how many are vaccinated, mm. who's carrying it. I think there are large chunks of the country where you could open up. And the reason that will not happen is because the government has said consistently it doesn't want to reopen in areas. It wants everybody to go at once. Yes. And, and that's, that's fine as long as we're not waiting till the end of the year for everybody to go at once, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's no reason for that. There's no reason for that. You could make changes to, to, to health service access instantly, and as I've said to you already, at no cost, um, but you'd have to get scientific agreement to do that. You could make changes to certain kinds of events fairly quickly, I would have thought now, um, in advance of June the 12th. Yes. Uh, but the indoor thing, I think, still needs to be tested a bit more than one nightclub in Liverpool uh, before we before we let go on that, because I think that's the potential spreader risk. Mm. There are risks of multi-generational households, people going to work when they should stay at home and isolate, but we're largely over that now because... There isn't much virus. Well, there isn't much of it around. Well, that's exactly right. So that's why I think we need to sort of start to get things back to normal quicker. And, and certainly doctor surgery should should be one. Dr. Lawrence Buckman, thank you very much indeed. Former chair of the BMA's GP committee, a North London GP himself, uh, who knows a fair amount about why uh, there is a problem. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very good afternoon to Calvin Robinson, Conservative commentator and, of course, a former teacher. Calvin, hello. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm not bad, thank you, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, is it right to say that you kind of decided to move away from teaching and move into other areas because of the way that teaching was, was becoming? 
it's not because of it, but it did have a part to play. Mm. It's becoming incredibly woke and it's difficult to push back constantly all day, every day. It really is. It's tough. Particularly if you're not pushing back against the kids, but you're pushing back against the head and pushing back against some of the other teachers, right? Yeah, I mean, I've seen teachers on Twitter today talking about how often do teachers need to have racial literacy training? And this is just another word for saying, you know, anti-racist training, because it's no longer not okay to be not racist. You've got to be anti-racist. You've got to believe in white privilege and microaggressions Mm. and all this fluffy nonsense. It's going further and further. You can't just turn up and teach anymore. You've got to be woke and believe in their ideology. And this is the trouble, isn't it? You have to believe in it. It's not as though they can have you purport to teach things which they want you to teach. You have to sort of believe it as well. Yeah, I mean, I taught computer science and I was told by my head and my executive head not to mention Brexit because they knew my personal politics. I'm I'm turning up here to teach computing. Brexit's got nothing to do with it. They're that afraid of someone opposing their viewpoint. Yes. And also, why can't you talk about it? I mean, it's something that's happening. It's something that's in the public domain. It's something that people talk about. And I mean, if you're giving a rounded education to to particularly secondary school uh, pupils as, as they get to the ages of, say, 14 and 15, they want to know about what's going on around them. They see the news. They read newspapers, maybe, if they're forced to. Uh, but they certainly read stories on their on their iPhones. You know, you'd think that that would be welcome. I think you answered your own question when you said, why can't you talk about it? And then you said, if you give a rounded view, because they don't want you to give a rounded view. That Mm. is the problem. While I was pointed out and told I could not discuss Brexit at any cost, everyone else in the school was discussing it, but from a left-leaning Ramona perspective. It's okay to discuss it if you have the right opinions. That is the issue. It really is quite remarkable, isn't it? And in this particular case that we're talking about today, this one particular school, and I know it's only one school, but I bet you it's happening in a lot of other places as well. Um, phrases such as, good morning, boys and girls, now uh, prohibited. It's indoctrination, isn't it? There's nothing sexist about saying boys or girls, because that's what they are. Mm. They're boys and they're girls. It would be sexist to say, you know, girls are bad at sport or boys can't have dolls, but it's, we're not getting to that level. Mm. They, what they're doing is they're altering our language in order to push their ideologies upon us. That's not right. That's no. offensive. No, it really is. And also, it's kind of counterintuitive for an educational establishment to take words which have been used for a specific purpose for a very long time and replace them with other words which are actually not as descriptive and not as good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I quite understand, although I don't agree with not using the word guys. Guys is fine. It's kind of universal at this point when it's in plural. Yes. But I used to work at, at an all-girls school and I was told to stop using the word ladies. You know, I would, I would address them, you know, good morning, ladies. Mm. How are you doing, ladies? And when I taught boys, I'd call them gentlemen. And to me, that's good manners. That's good etiquette. These yeah. are things we need to reinforce. But no, gendered language is a problem now to the left-leaning ideologues mm. in, in schools. Which, Why can't we let kids be kids? Yeah, which is remarkable, really. I mean, I've got two teenage kids, as I talk to, to, to people about quite a lot, and they're relatively yeah. sane. You know, uh, they're, they're pretty typical teenagers. They're interested in all manner of things. They they don't have particularly woke views. It might not surprise you to know. Um, but they know people that do, and they're quite tolerant about other, th- other people's thoughts, and they're tolerant of what other people say. Um, they're completely and utterly... I would say race-less. You know, they don't even think about race. They don't even think about class. They just go to school, have a bunch of friends, do what they do. You know, it's that simple. They don't need to be filled with kind of preconceived notions. 
as it should be. If we let kids be kids and let them get on with each other, they don't care about all these immutable characteristics. This when we're pushing our views on them, we're pushing our politics onto kids. That's when it becomes an issue. And that's what the left are doing in, in schools right now. We know that 70 to 80% of teachers are left-leaning. And we know that they're indoctrinating kids with their perspective because it is the one that they see as right. Mm. They are self-righteous in that. And we need to push back against it. And parents need to check what's being taught in schools and how it's being taught. And we need to talk to our governors and our head teachers and say, this is not okay. You know, it's not okay to say you can't call my girl a girl or my boy a boy because that is what they are right and do you find that much of that is driven by the school itself or by the local education authority or the council or the government who is it that's responsible for this kind of shift i think genuinely is just teachers themselves and i'm not teacher bashing because as i always say they are the most hard-working individuals that i've ever met or worked with in my life they're so tough and so on it in their vocation but they, get, they come out of teacher training with this liberal progressive mindset that they're going to change the world for the better by pushing their own views. And that's not what education is about. Mm. It should be a balanced perspective, a broad array of views, and we should be pushing knowledge, not agendas. Yeah. And we need to, I think we need to fix the teacher training colleges and remind teachers of this because it's upside down right now. Right. Which brings us on, of course, to higher education, which you're involved with now to an extent. Um, you know, is that where it needs to start then, the kind of the re-commonsensical um, uh, way forward, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, higher education is where this whole no platforming start. I think it was the National Students Union were the first to deplatform someone. Mm. And this is the place where we're supposed to have open debate and freedom of speech and freedom of expression and exploring thoughts and ideas. If you can't do it in a university context, I don't know where you can do it. So we need to really champion freedom of speech in, in universities again yes. and get free speech champions in every university. Where So if someone is no platformed or deplatformed, the university themselves are held to account. But so are the students' unions who have become incredibly wet as well and forgotten what they're supposed to stand mm. for. Yeah. So how are you finding that now that you're sort of back in that mix, back in a, a sort of a place of higher learning uh, <laughs> speaking as a student myself um you know oxford has become quite woke um it's unfortunate because the oxford union used to be the pinnacle of debate and it still goes on within the oxford union but outside of that the university itself is incredibly scary in mm. that students have been become the ones who are pushing to silence opposing views now it's not even about the academics it's not about the dons and the lecturers it's about students themselves have forgotten what it's all about uh, so i don't know how we remind people of the importance of, of freedom mm. yeah because i saw i think it was at liverpool university this week or somewhere in liverpool if it wasn't liverpool university uh that the, the students had the, the the name gladstone removed from a set of buildings because of course Gladstone, despite the fact that he was a rather well-known politician, apparently, uh, according to them, had too many links with slavery for them to be able to walk past the building that was called Gladstone House without feeling yeah. massive bouts of offence. Famously, we've got the Cecil Rhodes uh, statue on, above all. Yes, that's College still up there, isn't it? it? Thankfully, yes. But this is the thing. People don't even know where it is. If you ask them in, in on Oxford High Street to point it out, they don't have a clue. Right. They're not genuinely offended by this. It's just an activist movement. It's well, you campaign. can't really see it, can you? Because it's up above the door of something. <laughs> so if you're walking along the street, it's not as if you're suddenly, your eye suddenly moves up to where it is. Yeah, and likewise, if you ask them facts about Cecil Rhodes, they'll tell you some propaganda that they've read online, but they don't know anything about the guy. And that's the problem. They don't know the history. They're just told that he was a slave or he was a racist person. Mm. And it's just, we need to get past this, being offended on other people's behalves and trying to rewrite history to fix it, because that doesn't work. Mm. First of all, Oriel College is a lovely college and the statue looks nice up there, but it provides history within a set context. And the funds, you know, the money invested by Cecil Rhodes 
it is important for the university but that's regardless of that it's a part of the university's history now mm. so to, to tear it down would be detrimental and students need to you know get get a grip i mean notwithstanding whatever uh, is going on with the statues commission in london it does seem though thankfully that the, the sort of the thirst for knocking down statues and tearing them down um seems to have passed you know that seems to have been a thing of last summer it is interesting, though, isn't it, that there's a commission set up in London to look at which statues to tear down next. Mm. The people have stopped clamouring to tear down statues. It's not even a, an issue. It's not democratic because the people don't care about it anymore. Right. It's Sadiq Khan and his uh, his left-wing politics. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Can we set up a commission to rebuild some new statues? I'd like to put some statues up, I think. Well, I mean, there's talk of putting one up to Prince Philip, isn't there, which, which amazingly hasn't seemingly yet got too much um, uh, opposition to it because you would imagine that the, you know, the left-wingers will be out in force going, he was a mad racist, you can't possibly put a statue up to him. Uh, but he's kind of been adopted by the left now because they've sort of snookered themselves by saying what a great guy he was because it turns out he was an immigrant. Therefore, because he came from a different country and came here to do what he did, um, you know, they all love him now. Yeah, he's on that hierarchy of victimhood, isn't he? Because <laughs> yeah. he wasn't English-born. Right. I forgot about that. But yeah, it would be fantastic to see a statue for his Royal Highness uh, Prince Philip. He was probably, you know, the last of an era of that quintessential English gentleman mm. um, that we should look up to and kind of emulate and bring back, you know, he didn't mess around with this woke nonsense. He spoke common sense and said what he thought and he had a laugh. And if people were offended, they were offended. That's yeah, on them. Absolutely. And I love that. And what do you make of, I mean, Kevin, I was going to look at this in more detail, but we were just speaking earlier about how many um, head teachers now are getting so much money, you know, earning sort of, you know, it's not unusual for them to be earning six figure salaries, 200,000. Some of them are getting some of them even more than that to run a secondary school. I mean, it seems like a very, very different world to the one that my mother, who was a primary school teacher and a secondary school teacher, lived in. Yeah, this is a tough one for me because it is a vocation. So you're supposed to go into this profession because you care and you want to make a difference. But at the same time, we do want to keep really good people in these schools. And we want to put them in schools where they can make a difference. And to, to recruit them into the tougher, uh, more diverse areas is difficult. So there has to be an incentive there if we want to encourage really good heads mm. into deprived areas. So it's, it's a tough one to balance out for me. Yeah, but to mean, do we need to pay them all than the prime minister gets? I don't think anyone should be paid more than the Prime Minister gets, but it's an open market. So if that's what they're willing to pay, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Calvin, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Calvin Robinson, a Conservative commentator, former teacher, uh, a man that knows a thing or two about what's going on in the schools. And he's saying that the teacher training colleges need to be better, really. Higher education uh, needs to be less woke. So that basically teachers are not all coming out of the same factory with all of these ridiculous ideas uh, that they have to make sure they don't offend anybody. You know, I don't think anybody is suggesting that they should be offensive to be teachers, but certainly they should be able to talk to the children in a way uh, which they understand and in a way which is not in some way um, excluding anybody or making anybody feel as if they've said something wrong and caused offence to someone. You know, they have to prepare these kids for life in the real world. And while the real world is probably slightly better now than it used to be, Nevertheless, they still need to know what to expect in the big wide world when they go out and get a job, don't they? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. You know how we like to talk about dogs. We like to talk to, about dogs specifically with Dr. Roger Mugford, our favourite animal behaviourist, because a story uh, in the papers this morning says that dogs are known uh, for their mischievous habit of hairing off rather than paying attention to their owners. Now, apparently, this is not just down to a lack of discipline. It's all to do with the shape of the dog's face. Let's find out from Roger uh, what it's all about. Roger, very good afternoon to you. Mike. 
Pleasure to be with you. Very nice to see you. Now, I was just recounting uh, to one of our producers that the last time you and I were on here together, you were showing up, showing us your beautiful Korean dog, and we were working out whether it was left or right pawed, weren't we? That's right, and I think he turned out to be ambidextrous. He did. Very clever dog. <laughs> now, apparently, according to what I'm reading, depending on whether your dog's got a flatter face or a longer face, um, it might be more or less obedient. How does that work? Well, when puppies are born, they're all flat faced, so the, the eyes are at the, the front of their face, mm. and, and we all get turned on by puppies. They all look so cute. And we, we maintain that in some breeds, like chihuahuas and pugs, and we keep their flat nosed appearance and yes. their eyes forward just like in a human face right. and we think that's really cute and mm. of course these these are breeds that have lately become incredibly popular because they're almost like child substitutes yeah there's real dogs like dave my korean dog or joe shepherd or a labrador mm. they have their eyes on the outside facing facing outwards and of course they've got virtually 180 degrees vision mm. uh which puts them ahead of humans right. so they can see a squirrel or a rabbit appearing way over to the left that I wouldn't be able to see because I'm looking straight forward, but they've got eyes which are peering off to the oh, left. I see. Right. But does that also mean that when they're looking at you, if they've got the eyes on the side, they're not seeing you as directly as if they had their eyes in the front? Um, I think I think the ones with, uh, and by the way, there's uh, some Russian scientists, some Russian, Hungarian scientists. Is that a toy dog? I'm, the only reason I'm asking... This is, this is uh, uh, my pretend dog. Okay. Dave, who's at my feet, um, isn't conveniently placed to, to illustrate this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, they found that there were substantial differences in the eye contact made by flat-faced dogs, as right. opposed to pointy-nosed dogs. <clears throat> and basically, the flat-nosed dogs made eye contact more quickly. But I think it is, or well, one of the explanations that they offered for this observation is that with cute dogs with pug-like faces uh, tend to be looked at more often and they're only saying, oh, you're so cute, baby, mm. baby. Um, whereas we treat real dogs with sideways facing uh, eyes more like real dogs. Mm. But actually, no matter what the breed of dog, if you if a stranger, you stare at it in a dog's face, um, they don't like it. No. So the, when a stare from the owner is very different from a stare from uh, someone that they, they, that they know and love. Mm. Um, yeah, why is that? Because they sort of look away, don't they? Well, it's a threat signal because on a dog-on-dog -dog or wolf-on-wolf -wolf contact, mm. um, a, a, a threatening eye stare is just that, a threat. And mm. it's basically leave that bone alone, go away, uh, this bitch is mine. That right. sort of um, dominance social signaling. Yeah. Um, and, and dogs retain that with us. But one interesting thing about eye contact and dogs is if you look to the left as I am or to the right as I am, they will follow your eye contact, mm. but only if you and that dog have a relationship. So try that with your own pet yeah. dog. Yeah. Well, do you know what, what I've found recently when I've been out with Ziggy, and I think we're going to try and share a picture of Ziggy at some point. I don't know whether we can. But um, is I've started pointing lately. There he is. I've started pointing um, yeah. And when we're out for a walk at times, because we go on different walks around the farms where I am down in Sussex and he's got always got a variety of different ways he can go. And sometimes I wait and rather than walking in a direction, I just point in a direction. He started going in the, in the direction that I point, which is great. And, 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 and that, again, derives from dogs, close relationships with people, yeah. because we would want to point to go chase that deer or right. rabbit or, or attack that intruder. Um, and, and it's something that is 
very much part of the evolutionary history of dogs, which goes back, of course, 10 plus thousand years with, with humankind. Um, and very few other animals show this. Higher primates, mm. like old world, old world primates like chimps and so on, they certainly do exactly the same. But most animals, and, and in particular wolves, real <laughs> ancestral dogs, mm. do not show this, this tendency. So we, we've changed and we've evolved together, dogs and people, in mm. so many similar ways. Yes. And what about the smell con uh, sort of com compartment? Because obviously I see his nose is going kind of all the time, tens of the dozen when we're outside. And I think, I think I was told there's something like 26 or 27 different muscles in the Labrador's face, you know, that, that moves its nose around. Yes. Um, does that affect what they're looking at as well? Well, probably um, when they're, they're focusing on tracking and, as you're saying, you know, finding a mouse in, in long grass and so on, um, I suspect they almost turn off their visual attention. It's all about, uh, of course, they've got all these other senses that they're hearing yeah. um, and their proprioception, their, 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 their sense of um, touch is, is all fantastically evolved in mm. dogs uh, to a, a greater extent, I suspect, unless you're some really skilled eye surgeon, um, I suspect that dogs are better at most of these tasks than mm. humans will ever be. Yes, oh, I think so. And and um, and how is Dave, uh, the Korean well, uh, rescue dog? Well, funny you should ask that. He's, mm. he's coming because he heard your voice. So uh, I'm rather cleverly going to... Dave. Hello, Dave. You're on, you're on talk radio. Hello, Dave. No, no. How are you he's doing, Dave? A bit of a pointy nose. I think he's a bit <laughs> self-conscious about this. <laughs> he does, he does. He looks a little... He doesn't look a bit shy today, doesn't he? <laughs> well... You know, he's not an experienced media performer <laughs> like, like me. No, but he's a beautiful, he's such a beautiful dog. He really is. He really is. And, uh, and uh, I'm sorry to report that there are about four million dogs like Dave sitting in cages mm. in Korea. That's awful, isn't it? Which are due to be eaten. And it's, it's obviously a sort of international disgrace. Just awful. My producer, Adam, <laughs> uh, is, is, is from Australia. He's got a Japanese dog. Um, which doesn't look that dissimilar to Dave, um, but he's but he's got two different colours. I think. What sort of dog is it? Shiba Inu. Do you know about that? Yeah, 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 indeed. So, so I mean, similar kind of facial shape to yours. Yeah, yeah, similar to Dave. Um, and uh, in Tired Asia, just uh, you know, city dogs, uh, feral dogs. Yeah. So there are so many like him, and and of course, when you live with them, you realise that they are a little bit different. They're a little bit mistrustful of humankind yes. because humankind have been unkind to them. Well, so, it's incredible that they even want to be anywhere near a human, really, isn't it? Well, I uh, know. It's uh, a wonderful thing called oh, called food. And uh, Yes, there yeah, is that. So he's a very happy dog. Here. Yeah. But, um, he looks, he looks so like... anyway, um, I think that I'd like listeners to do this eye test with yes. their dogs. Okay. And see how long it takes before your dog maintains eye, direct eye contact with you right. or do they look away in a rather nervous anxious way mm. and if it's a flat faced dog does it more readily make that eye contact mm. because I think by training you as a dog owner of a pug or a, a, a French bulldog have been probably making a lot of direct eye contact because it's like talking to a baby yes Okay, well, we'll try that. I shall give myself that exercise for the weekend and I shall report back uh, the next time we're on. <laughs> Good show. Dr. Roger Mugford, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating animal behaviourist there talking about why some dogs are more obedient than others. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 